Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, so history is our central theme today, or rather, I should say, it's our starting point. Now, you're probably wondering why I think history is relevant to a podcast on leadership. Well, we are going to talk about that. But in my view, I think without a better understanding of history, it's hard to understand how people, particularly people from historically underrepresented groups, see the world. And if you can't appreciate a different point of view from your own, then you can't build a strong, diverse team. So at Juneteenth, it seems a good time to pause and ask what history has to show us, why things seem to be changing so rapidly in our understanding of history, and why you should care, and also what it tells us about leadership today. So my guest today is Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry. She's an author and historian. She's also the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. I have to tell you, I have to practice that four times to say it clearly. Um, Dinah is also the chair of the history department and the first person of color to take that role. And she is a scholar of the enslaved and a specialist on gender and slavery, as well as on black women's history in the United States. She's an award-winning author and editor of six books. And her most recent publication, co-authored with Kelly Nicole Gross, is called A Black Woman's History of the United States. And it's an empowering testament to black women's ability to build communities in the face of a fresh oppression and their continued resistance to systemic, systemic racism and sexism. I get the name of your title, uh, professorship title correctly, and I can't get the rest of the word straight. At any rate, Professor Barry did her... MBA and PhD work, um, not MBA, her BA and MA and PhD work in African American studies and U.S. history at University of California at Los Angeles. Dinah, Dr. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it. And I know some of the things that are on your plate, so I'm even more grateful about your taking time to do this. So let's talk about why this topic matters to you. Why does history of the enslaved matter to you? And more importantly, what's the question you've been trying to answer in your work? Well, first, I think people don't know in general, the larger American and world population doesn't know that much about enslaved people. They might have heard about the institution of slavery. They might have learned about Greek and Roman forms of slavery. Um, They might have heard about the African slave trade. But they don't always know about how people manage to survive and live in enslavement. And so for me, as an African-American and someone who grew up trying to figure out where I sat with this history, um, I I learned as I went through education um, that it's not a history that is something that we're never we're necessarily proud of, but it's a really important history to understand world history. It's a way for us to understand how different groups of people came into contact with one another and how we've managed to survive and thrive and build nations out of this really, really rough contact, for lack of a better word. Okay. Um, you almost sound like a psychologist to me, not a historian, when you say I want to look at the lives of enslaved people and how they managed to survive 
and continue to live and carry on and raise families and all the other things while being enslaved. That's a pretty powerful statement and strikes me as also highly relevant as we think about how to build resilient communities. Well, I think it's interesting that you the, you cut the psychology behind that because um, I struggled as a young child to talk about it and uh, in school settings. Um, I was always sort of singled out and people teased me um, about my race. And so I wasn't sure um, in my early, early childhood what to do with this history. And my parents always taught me to be proud of where I came from. And they taught me about African history and different, um, different um, nations and different countries in Africa and the peoples and the culture and the language and all their contributions. But that wasn't material that I was learning in school. And so I think I went through this, this period of my own growth um, in becoming comfortable with the topic and realizing that there is so much rich, um, rich lessons of life about the people, when you study the people in this institution that I think we can all learn from. And, and it's not, it's a still, it's still a stain on, on many nations, uh, history, but it's such a wonderful way to learn about the resilience of the human spirit. And I think that's why you're hearing that psychological piece there. I can, I can see that. And when you're studying somebody who's been enslaved and you're talking about their experiences, I can imagine it's a very powerful influence. Can I ask, um, I know we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, I, you said as a child that there was this contrast between what was happening at school and what you were learning at school and people teasing you at school and sort of knowing where you fit in that version of history or that component of history, I should say, and then the contrast with what your parents were also teaching you at home. Can you say a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, well, um, I mean, we're talking about experiences where people were asking me questions about why the palms of my hands were white, but the rest of my body was black. Mm-hmm. Um, why the whites of my eyeballs looked very bright. Um, why they couldn't see my pupil because my, my, my irises were so dark. <laughs> um, yeah. Wanting to touch my hair and wondering why the texture, you know, why it felt differently. And, you know, so those are things like I was a curiosity Mm-hmm. And at home and in my community and the people that I knew and love and my family, I never, I was just who I was. We were all who we were. I never knew that there was something um, so different about me until I went into these other settings. Right. And um, I think the, the piece that really strikes me and why I mentioned the stuff about slavery earlier is that enslaved people live through much worse than what I just described. Mm-hmm. They survived it. Many of them survived it, not all, but many of them survived it, and they still were whole human beings. And I think for me, I actually gained strength from reading these stories. It's not something that it's, – it's a depressing history, but it's not always – the, the stories in there are not always depressing. Some of them are motivating and encouraging and show you great strength or wit, or um, you see the wisdom of enslaved people, the humor in enslaved people. And all of that is what I draw, draw from now. And I think that's where – um, I learned to embrace the history and, and not think about myself in a way that other people were othering me and thinking that I was so different and there was something wrong with me. That's where that's where that piece comes in. All right. I get this. Um, I should say that you've just published, as in just published, an article that I read today on the soul's value. 
and reading that article and hearing your words and hearing the stories or the segments of stories from some well-known and some not so well-known enslaved people and seeing some of the horrendous things that they went through, nothing new in those stories, but you rarely hear what got them through those horrendous moments. And that's what I think you have been focusing on. How did they manage to keep going? All right, so let me backtrack for a moment. I said at the beginning that I thought if you didn't understand a little bit about history, you had a hard time understanding where people came from. So why do you think leaders, especially business leaders today around the world, not just in the U.S., should care about history? Well, one, it gives us a context to understand where we are and gives us it, history allows us to understand a foundation of experiences that people are coming into. So if you're interacting with um, business leaders from other countries, other institutions, uh, other cultures, mm-hmm. there's a history that, that, that is their foundation. And if you don't understand that foundation, and if you don't know anything about it, you might make cultural missteps or you might misunderstand one another because of that. And so I think I, this is really a question about uh, cultural competency, you know, is understanding where people come from and about the history. And it doesn't mean that we have to be experts in everybody in world history and know everything about every culture. But I'm saying if, if you're hiring um, people and learn about their culture, learn about their institutions, learn about their traditions, and that will allow you to learn about the people you work with. In other ways, as opposed to making assumptions about things that you might have seen in the media or popular culture. Um, I think that's one of the main things that, that really gets under my skin is that people, because they do such a cursory, they have such a cursory understanding of other cultures. Sometimes that limited window of what they know about that culture comes from a segment on a television show or um, a, so- a popular song. And that person in, in your community or in your work setting may not even embrace or feel connected to that music, that song, that show. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I think is really interesting. It's um, We're seeing a bit of that coming out, uh, particularly now among the Asian American um, group. There's not like that's a monolith either, mm-hmm. but talking about the ways in which Asians have been depicted in American folklore, mm-hmm. U.S. folklore and TV shows, and they're always in some of the goofiest kind of positions. And I'm mm-hmm. not even talking about the historical ways in which we've represented them as unintelligent and various other characteristics that has been in the popular media. I'm just talking about TV shows and mm-hmm. the roles that they're always playing. And you can imagine that, you know, that isn't who I am or what mm-hmm. I'm about or what my friends are about. And my culture is much richer than that. Absolutely. Stereotypes. So I like your idea, particularly as people think about having a global team, and mm-hmm. trying to connect with members in that global team to know a bit more about the traditions, the stories, the history. And it's an easy question to ask because it isn't, tell me what I should and shouldn't do around you. It's a much gentler, tell me about your traditions. Tell me mm-hmm. about your favorite stories, your folklore. I, those can be very interesting conversations to have with the team. Absolutely. I think it would expand the diversity inclusion of that particular work setting mm-hmm. um, to learn about different cultures, to learn about um, food ways, mm-hmm. uh, to learn about about different types of religious traditions that people may participate in that would make them miss work for some days, mm-hmm. like to understand what that is and respect it. Yeah. Um, and just even though it's different, it may not be the same as your culture. It's still something that's very important. And maybe you want to know why. 
Yeah, and that allows the individual to be a bit more of themselves, their whole self, not just their output machine, something I've said many times lately. (laughs) All right, now I'm going to be a little bit of a skeptic for the skeptics in the audience, um, Mm -hmm. and that is it feels a little bit like history is getting rewritten all the time. So I'm going to stay in the U.S. for just a moment. There have been a lot of events that we've been talking about that were never in the textbooks that I studied, at, especially coming through to high school. And we will make no commentary about the quality of my education <laughs> pre-university. That is a whole show in and of itself. But apart from that, you know, we never heard about Juneteenth. It's fairly new in the lexicon in the U.S. and around the world. And I certainly never heard about the Tulsa Massacre, the Greenwood Massacre, and a host of other things. You know, some of the mythology that I was taught about, the Confederate War, supposed heroes, turns out not to be exactly an accurate depiction of even what they thought about themselves at the time. So are we rewriting history? What is happening here? I think it's a great question, and I, I, I'm glad you asked, because the, the question about rewriting it is really an important question for a trained historian, mm-hmm. because what we do is we write the there's facts, right? We know what the history, we know that this event happened on a particular day. Um, we may have, but we, we draw our evidence and we write our books based on the written record or the material record that we can find to tell about a particular moment in time. So the reason why history is revised, it's not that we rewrite it. We're, we're revising it when we get new sources, when we get new types of documents, when we get new perspectives, when we learn about something that, we, that was missing from before, or we have um, somebody that donates a, a set of papers that tell us a totally different story about a war or an experience that we've written about in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So history, it's not that we're rewriting history to tell a different story. We're trying to tell the most rich, authentic story that we can from multiple perspectives. And often that changes when we have new sources. And sometimes those sources change because of technology. I'll give you one example. So we, when we look at photographs, um, we had black and white photographs, you know, back, the, the camera was developed in the 1840s, okay? And that, it took almost two hours to take a picture at that time. They would have to stand still, and, and the pictures took a long time, so people would misread expressions on people's faces. But if you think, okay, this person was, had to stand in that position for two hours, um, that might make you think about the picture a little differently. Well, we late, recently, maybe in the last, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but maybe the last 10 years, we have technology that's called the TIFF files or TIFF files, where you can actually zoom in to the same pictures that we've been looking at for decades. And now we can zoom in and see a person's face. We can see, oh, they have um, uh, tribal markings on their cheek, or they have uh, gold earrings in their ear, or there's a woman in this picture that's breastfeeding that I never saw the baby from afar away, or there's a dog sitting here in this community of enslaved people that I never noticed. And so that's one thing where we can look at a picture and tell a story about an experience, but then we now can tell more stories and deeper, richer stories because because of that. So history is constantly being um, revised, not necessarily rewritten. We're revising it when we get new evidence. Um, it's just like when you have to upgrade your computer to get better software. It's the same thing. <laughs> updating. We're going to yes. call it updating. <laughs> That's better. That's absolutely right. Whatever a software word, we should figure that one in there. Now, yeah. you've been involved in some of this, particularly at Texas. Do you want to talk about what you've been involved in and why you think this is so important? Well, I've been involved in a lot, um, particularly working with l- lately working with K through twelve. I'm a, I'm a history professor, as you mentioned, at the university, but I've also been really concerned about K through twelve education and the kind of material that students are learning in textbooks. 
um, and wanting to work with textbook companies to make sure that they have the most cutting edge research and up to date uh, material based on the work that historians that are doing that are practicing this history. And one way to do that is to teach history through primary documents. Um, That's a great way, and it takes away bias. But our our educational system is being um, attacked or being questioned now, and people are they're now trying to dictate in Texas in particular. And there's, I think, eight or nine other states that are following suit where there's legislation that's been proposed to say that you cannot teach that one group was over another group. You cannot teach um, you cannot teach history in a way that says that one group was better or less than the other. Um, And and there's some other language. there about uh, making sure that the students aren't feeling uncomfortable. And we really have no control over how our students feel. We can present, if I'm going to present to you the case of someone that was lynched, I, how do you present a lynching and not, not, and make that, um, and make that story, that conversation so that it just feels um, almost like numb to your audience. I, I don't know how people won't feel bad or feel guilty or for sad, feel sad or feel ashamed. I mean, you're going to go through a host of emotions when you see photographs of lynching, lynching victims. Um, so I just feel like it's, you're, the teachers are being hamstrung or they're being asked to be very nimble about how they teach. And we are always very careful, um, particularly when we look at the primary documents. We say, here's, here's, the, here's the record of uh, one person's perspective of the war. Here's another person's perspective of the war. Here's someone that was working on the ground in an army camp. Here's someone that was working on a ship. I mean, those are multiple perspectives. And then you allow, allow the students to develop their own understanding. And we want to teach them to think critically. But this notion of critical race theory has, you've probably heard of this recently, and most people hadn't heard of it, but scholars in the academy have been talking about critical race theory since the 80s. And all of a sudden now it's, it's a problem because it's looking at the way race intersects with the law and how there have been, there have been laws that have put certain groups um, above and beyond, above other groups. There are certain laws that restricted movement of, of different groups of people. And so I don't see how you can teach Jim Crow segregation and not talk about issues related to uh, critical race theory or issues related to one group being treated differently than another. Right. Or Japanese internment in World War II, to take a more recent example. There are a variety exactly. of them in history, and not just, I would say, in U.S. history. I think that's true in various well, cultures around the world at different moments in time. Some doing a better job at other moments in time, we will also honestly admit. Okay, I get your passion for this. While we're talking about this, when you're studying enslaved people and you're talking about their stories and their lives, what kind of sources are you looking at? Oh, I, I use every single source that I can possibly use. I'll give you an example. I use, um, plant, my main source is often plantation records from the people that enslaved them. Um, letters back and forth from plantation owners or enslavers and their managers. Uh, letters between plantation husbands and wives that are writing about the enslaved population that they're enslaving. But also financial records, mm-hmm. um, uh, bills of sale, deed records, uh, insurance records, tax records. All of these places, uh, all of these types of sources have information about enslaved people. We have very rare, we, ha- we do have slave narratives, enslaved people's narratives that were, there was a number of them that were published during slavery as early as 1825 in the United States um, and as late as the 1870s, 1880s. And then there was a series of interviews done in the 1930s as part of the Workers', Administ- Workers Progress Administration um, to help build jobs and also sort of record the last living testimonies of formerly enslaved people. 
So those are the sources that I use. Um, I use songs. Um, I also use archaeological sources. If there's been uh, an archaeological dig or a site that was a plantation or a, a particular a slave jail setting, anything that has material other uh, material aspects of the enslaved person's experience, um, I'm not really. I use whatever I can to try to tell these stories. Yeah. Well, and there are a few cases where we have enslaved an enslaved person who knows how to write and has written their own records, and some of those also become pretty valuable. All right, so let's talk about the real topic for the day, which is, um, oh, before I go there, Juneteenth. I know this is a special part of yours, and I'm suspicious that not everybody knows what Juneteenth is, particularly if you're not in the U.S. Just give us an explanation quickly. So Juneteenth, um, the title, the the name of this this holiday in Texas, and some states, other states, they're celebrating it. Um, Juneteenth came about because the Civil War ended in April of 1865, and enslaved people in Texas were not notified that they were free until June 19th of 1865. So it was a few months after the rest of the South was already known, uh, that already knew that they were free. And so that looks like um, black people at that time talked about this as a day of jubilee or emancipation day, a day of a day of celebration, a day of independence. And that's how it's been celebrated from 1866 on. There were these informal uh, celebrations where they celebrated Juneteenth as this day of freedom, very similar to the way people celebrate Fourth of July um, in terms of independence. Um, That's that started off very much as a Texas holiday. And it has it has sort of expanded in recent years. It's been around. um, Like I said, it's been around since since slavery ended in Texas. But then other states have now been participating. in it. And part of that is because for a number of reasons. One, you have um, the Great Migration and a, a number of enslaved people, when they became free, formerly enslaved people, left the site of where they were enslaved. Some of them went to California. Some of them went to the Illinois area. Some of them went east, you know, into the northeast. So there, there, that sort of proliferation of people throughout the United States allowed for this notion of Juneteenth to be celebrated in these smaller communities or, or in pockets of people that knew about Juneteenth. Um, it's become more of a, a celebration and a holiday. Some some cities are now getting that, giving that as a day off, um, and it's really now becoming a broader holiday to recognize and understand the history of slavery and what slavery and freedom mean. So it has a larger symbolic reason um, to, to celebrating it, and it's becoming much more popular than it had been in previous years. I love that that we have a July Fourth that we celebrate in the U.S., not around the world. I might add, around you know freedom and independence, but we have this one two weeks before that on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. That is a different version of freedom. Okay, I want to shift now to talk about your real theme, which is about the humanity mm-hmm. and the humanity, the human experience, and what you see from all of these enslaved people that you have studied, and particularly women. Take that anywhere you want to go. What have you learned? Oh, I've learned that enslaved people had, those that could survive and had a, the mental capacity to push forward, to live, to, that had the desire to, to live and to, to see freedom one day. Those people, I learned so much about um, about how they cope with difficult times, how they manage to continue to live on and, and have this piece of hope um, in their spirit, um, have something deep in their soul, which I call their soul value, that have carried them forward through very, very, very difficult and dark times to the point where some of them were beaten near to death 
And there was something just deep down in their soul that kept them alive to think that I can get through this. And on the other side of this is freedom. And they live for that. And that right there alone is just um, one of the most powerful lessons for me as a scholar that I've learned from enslaved people. I also learned um, that they were very resourceful. Um, there's a whole there's a whole history of enslaved people who I, I refer to as they, they self-liberated. They liberated themselves. Um, and I'm writing a piece about this uh, for the for the Atlantic that will be out uh, around June 19th. And um, they liberated themselves and they did so um, without necessarily waiting for some institutional organization or a proclamation. Um, they found ways to escape. Um, they, they lived in caves. They lived in small communities. They lived in the swamps, the dismal swamp area of, of North Carolina and, mm-hmm. and Virginia. And they would go to these places and they would live in isolation. Mm-hmm. Or they would escape to freedom um, to different parts of the world, um, and and that to me is amazing. They would they put themselves ship themselves in boxes for eighteen hours with just a bite of food, yep, and some water. They um, they 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 cross they they change their their gender appearance by you know looking at a female turns to a male for this particular escape. Uh, they cross racial boundaries. Um, they pass for white cut their hair off and escape to, to freedom. And so I think that there's just so much about the resilience of this, the human spirit that comes in these stories that I find very motivating and also um, just a way for us to think about, about how we treat one another and, and how we can deal with difficult times. Right. So I want to come back to what you said at the very beginning. Um, uh, my understanding, and correct me if I'm incorrect about this one, is that some people who were enslaved held on to the sense of hope and believed that they were living for one day a sense of freedom, regardless what that freedom actually looked like. And it gave their sense of their soul was something that could not be broken. Absolutely. Other people could not hold on to that sense of hope and fell into despair. And, you know, I know that some of the writings describe them as walking around sort of almost like a zombie-like. It's an interesting parallel to our modern-day zombie concept. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much has killed themselves or killed their children or Mm -hmm. just died, just wasted away. Mm -hmm. When you look at the differences between those two sets of people— are there any particular characteristics or behaviors or patterns that help you live on the positive side as opposed to live on the negative side? And I'll tell you why I asked that in just a moment. Wow, that's a tough question, Wanda. <laughs> so you're saying, are, when I, is there a characteristic on those that are on one side or the other? Or behavior? Is there, you know, what is it? Can you, can you say what's going to flip one person from the other, one side mm. to the other? No, you cannot. And that's why I actually left room for that. So much of the scholarship in my field of, of slavery studies, world slavery studies, focus on the despair, the depression, the melancholy, the, the, the death of, of people, of enslaved people, of them not surviving, of them being in a childlike state, of them being in a stupor, just being, you know, non-existent but physically alive. And I kept trying to understand, like, as a reader, as a person who was trying to digest this work, I kept trying to understand well, what about all the people that had that glass half full attitude, which is 
I'm, I'm, you know, admittedly, that's where I am. I'm half full. I'm always half full. Um, and so I was trying to understand, well, where are the people like me? Like, how would I, I, mean, I, I don't like to think about how I would live. I, I tell my students, don't think about what I would do at that time. Don't even try to do that. But let's just study the records and the people and let's try to understand that. So what I have seen, I can tell you the patterns I've seen. I have seen some that fall into despair because it's just one heartbreak, one sale, one separation, one death or one beating after another. And they just get to a point where they, where they break. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it's like only in your individual soul that you know how far as you're experiencing it, how far you can handle. And maybe you don't, maybe you're taken to the depth so low that you're not sure what's going to happen. And I, I've heard testimony on red stories where enslaved people thought, I know I was on the brink of death. Or I was I was one one breath away from death, and they, but they lived to tell it, you know. Or I was one breath away from death, and I I decided that I will never again allow myself to be beaten like that. Mm-hmm. That that is something. There's something there. I don't know. And I I I've been I've been researching this and trying to write about this for decades. And that's that where I am right now is this concept of the soul value. And I think that those folks that are able to pull themselves out. Um, for whatever, sometimes they might be motivated. Sometimes they might have witnessed something and they didn't want that to be them. Or they had a partner that ran away um, that liberated themselves and, and without them. And they thought, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to get to where they are so we can be free together. I'm going to get to where we can have a family in freedom, where we can give birth in freedom, where we can get married in freedom. And sometimes that is the motivating factor. Or for some, this is interesting, death was also a motivating factor for both that were on the despair side and those that were on the life side. So for those that were on the despair side, death would end the, the, the troubles that they were experiencing and the misery they were experiencing. But those uh, that were thinking about death that looked at like death as a way to free themselves so that their souls would be free. And so it's really interesting that death sort of maybe that chart that I have in there should anchor it on both sides, but um, it just depends on how you look at it. Yeah. It's interesting, as we think about the um, leadership literature, and particularly around this topic of resilience. Now, granted, I don't think there are very many leaders living through these rather extreme circumstances. (laughs) But often to study resilience, we look at people who have gone through absolutely horrendous experiences, um, like losing limbs, you know, Mm -hmm. in the Boston Marathon, for example, Mm -hmm. And deciding how do they build themselves back and Mm -hmm. come back out into the world with a sense of hope. And one of the things that we find is that there is that ray of hope. There is Mm -hmm. this belief that whatever it is, I will get out to the other side. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily go back to what I was or not, but I will get out to the other side. And I hear that in the stories that you tell, that belief that I can get somewhere that's different, whether in death or mm-hmm. in ultimate freedom in one way or another. So that's an interesting component. And there's also this sense of there are people around me who will help me with mm-hmm. this journey. Yes. In yes. some capacity, that sense of community that you have written about and not enough, a lot. When we study people who deal with adverse circumstances, they end up with that same sense of community far-flung communities often who produce a resource or a suggestion that they hadn't seen before that's another next step. Yes, yes. And then the final piece that I think is really important is it's not how am I going to get from here to freedom, it's how am I going to get from here to the next step, like often to the next day 
to leaders to the next quarter, the next week, the next month. And those small steps that actually move you in the direction that you really wanted to go in. So I know they're dramatically different circumstances, but it seems to me there's an awful lot of parallels. Oh, yeah. I can totally see that. And it's funny because I'm a very, um, I think about things in, in small chunks. You know, as I, as I move through things that I have to do or goals that I set, it's always in these small chunks. Like, let me get to this part and get to the next part. So I completely res- that completely resonates with me. I All right. Well, Tina, I think we could keep talking about this one for a while. So it's a good time for a break. My guest today is Dr. Dani Remy Berry. She's an author and historian, um, a chaired professor at the history uh, department at UT, sorry, University of Texas at Austin. And she's also chair of the history department. Six books that she's either author or editor on, and the most recent one, the one that's received a lot of attention, co-authored with Kelly Nicole Gross, is A Black Woman's History of the United States. We'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about Dinah's experience as an African-American faculty member and what she believes is working and not working so well for her from her own experience. And we'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, 
back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, um, the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin and also the Chair of the History Department there. We have been talking about Dinah's research and the part that I, of course, find so fascinating and think is so relevant for leaders is this understanding of the resilience and the communities that enslaved people managed to create in spite of all the enormous adversity that we're facing. Obviously, not everybody managed to come in a positive way. Some did slip into despair and suicide and a whole range of other um, things. And some people move from one side to the other. But I think there's a lot to learn about resilience. I also love Dinah's statement at the very beginning that history, meaning understanding traditions, practices, stories, food, um, food preparation, all that's around that is a great way of connecting with people who are from a different culture from you, particularly as we're thinking about global teams. So it makes me think about, again, the um, understandings we carry with us into the world based on our historical context. So at this point, I want to shift and talk about um, Dinah's experiences. And I want to be really clear with both Dinah and everybody that I am not asking you, Dinah, to speak for all black people or all people of color. I think that is grossly unfair because I don't think anybody of a single race or multiple races, for that matter, um, see the world in the same way or have the same experience. And I'm also, just to be clear, not asking you to, quote, educate us. So you tell us all the things that we don't know about the black experience. I, in, that's There are other places that's been written. That's not the purpose for today. What I am interested in are some unique components about your personal experience. And one in particular, listening to you, is this notion that you were asked to do so many things. And that you think that has an impact on both you and your reputation, how people perceive you. And the reason I say this is important is I hear this all the time from a variety of people who are in underrepresented populations, including women. So tell me about that. Well, I think, um, thank you for asking the question. First of all, that's something that's very common, as you mentioned, for many women of color faculty members that I know of, and also women in, in business. I've seen this with a number of my colleagues and friends who are in corporate America. Um, we're often, I think what's, what's sometimes missing is that we are we're doing the job that we do, that we're assigned to do. But then we have a whole host of tasks and other things that pull on our time. For instance, we're asked to mentor. Uh, we mentor our students. Like I'll, I'll use the university setting first, and then I'll give you some other examples. But we mentor students that come to work with you as a, as a faculty member, right? Um, and so those are your assigned students that are officially part of your, your crew, if you, for, will, for lack of a better word. Then you have people that you might mentor that are in the profession that are that are junior to you in the in the larger profession, and then you might have um, prospective students that are that are your courting or they're trying to get to know you or learn about your research. That that so then you might so your 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 list on your university might say I have six students. I'm just throwing a number out there, but you may really have a a, a sphere of like fifteen to twenty people that you are mentoring. What does that mean? It means that you're writing letters of recommendation. 
for more than the people that you might assume as a coworker of theirs that they're writing for. You might not recognize that. And this is that they're writing for, you know, 12 or 15 more people than you imagine them to write for. And it's not so, so much that, that, that we don't or that I don't know how to say no, because I say no all the time. So it's not that simple. But there's sometimes you, you choose to mentor people where you may feel like you have a responsibility to them or you, you're connected to them in a certain way. And I don't I mean, there's a, a variety of ways. Is that would be, um, and that you feel like you know I want to help shape this person's career. I want to help bring them along. I, I also want to maybe just pay it forward. I mean, so many people paid it forward for me, so that when we get requests, I'll give you a, another example. We have to write letters when people are being reviewed for tenure and promotion, and they're outside letters for other institutions. And so people wrote for me that I didn't know. There's eight to ten people that wrote for me. So whenever I get asked, I try to say yes. We try to say yes, but that's another list of letters that you're writing that is, is labor that's not necessarily seen. So I think one of the, that's just one example with the, with the letter writing. Um, but in addition to that, we're asked, I'm often asked to do speaking engagements, um, in community organizations, which I love to do. I'm speaking engagements with K through 12, you know, schools, uh, school boards, churches, community centers, um, you know, corporate uh, spaces. Where, so we have a, a whole host of other speaking engagements outside of the, the, the regular responsibilities that you have. And so there's a constant, there's a constant pull in multiple directions. I feel like if I had to think of one animal to represent, um, particularly I'll speak for my community, women of color um, in any field, I would say we're like, we're, we have eight arms. We're, people assume we have eight arms. We're like an octopus. We have all these tentacles and there's all kinds of things pulling on each of those tentacles. And so sometimes you might see one of your coworkers in a meeting and you're expecting them to speak up or to say something. And that might not be a dialogue or a battle that they choose to fight that day. And they just might say, you know, I'm tired today. I'm not, I don't have to announce that, but I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to sit there and watch everybody else do that labor. Right. Um, because people, but sometimes there's an expectation that Dinah would have said something right now. Or why, why isn't Wanda speaking up? You know, it's like, well, maybe somebody else can speak up today. Yeah. I see this in the corporate world where women and people of color There are too few of them to go around for all the places that you would like to have at least one of representing. Mm -hmm. And I feel sorry for women of color because they cross both boundaries simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like it's a two for count, Mm -hmm. if you will, Mm -hmm. in an unfair way. It is Mm -hmm. a bit of that. But you, no one ever takes stock of how many things we have asked this person to do. Exactly. And then individuals within the organization will get upset. Well, she doesn't help me. Mm -hmm. And you just like... Do you know who, how many others she is helping already? And it's, excuse me, not personal, but there's just so much time yes. that I, you can give. Yeah, you nailed it right there because that, that really is it, is that um, there's an expectation like, what, what is she doing for me or for my organization or my team? And there's an there's assumption that, well, if she's not doing this for us, then what's wrong? Why isn't she not, why is she not supporting us? And oftentimes it's because she's doing X, Y, Z, P, D, Q for seven or eight other different groups or other organizations. Um, and so that's really a challenge. Um, that's a really huge challenge for women. And I, I don't want to say it's just women of color. Like you said, um, many groups of people, but I would say that it's, it's, it most affects women of color from, from my experience, but that's, I'm a woman of color. So, 
Fair enough. I think it affects men of color as well. I think anytime you're in that very small minority and we want to put you in everything under the sun, we just don't stop to take stock of what are you already committed to and how much time extra is it. And that's something that a leader can help with if they'll tune into it. Yeah, I think we also have to be careful not to tokenize, you know, make that like tokenism, like, oh, well, we have to have this person of color, you know, because then it becomes tokenism and then it feels exploitive. Right. From the perspective of the person of color, you know, that that I think we have to really be careful on. Well, I think there are ways to include voices in your committees without having a person of that voice in the committee. So you can do surveys, you can invite guests, you can, there's a whole range of things that you could do to make sure the multitude of voices you need to hear are represented for that committee, rather than making sure we have one of every one of the voices in order to hear what needs to be heard. (laughs) As if every single voice was identical for every other group that they were with. Okay, now... Um, I want to move to a second thing that I know you care deeply about, and that is the title, Dr. Dinah, excuse me, Mm -hmm. Barry. Um, I rarely use titles, particularly when I'm introducing my guest, um, and that's a whole interesting story on why I don't. But with you, I made a special effort to use it at the very beginning and in my formal introductions, because I know it matters to you. Mm -hmm. Tell us why it matters. Well, because... People assume I'm the help. Um, if I am, no, literally, I mean, if I'm being very frank, um, I can be out with coworkers to lunch and um, people, if I go to the restroom, I come back, someone thinks I work at the restaurant. I've had people hand me plates, dishes. Um, if I'm shopping in a mall, people will hand me their clothes as if I, they just assume that I work there. I'm like, no, I'm a shopper. I'm here shopping as well. <laughs> Um, and so there's so there's a lot of this disrespect, and then in my profession, there are there are not many. There are I don't need, I don't want to say not many. There are a number of us that are now endowed, endowed named professors that are black women, and it's a very hard title to earn. And I say earn, and it's and it's and it's awarded. Um, that I feel like we should be we should be recognized for that. Um, and the last piece I'll say about that is that people often are extra informal with with people of color or myself. I mean, not just me, but just in general. And I, I've seen this with my family when we've gone to eat at restaurants where um, they will go to a table of, of somebody from another race and they'll say, oh, hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. We're going to, these are our specials. You know, we're going to go, these are the, you could have these five different things. Can I take your order? Literally come right to our table. Hey, what's up? How y'all doing? And it's so disrespectful. Why can't we, what are the specials? We had to ask, like, well, why, why are you saying, why, or hey, girl, I've had students that are very, very, like they try to homegirl you. Um, and I'm a very personable person and I'm not a big, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't find my, I don't feel like I'm stiff or anything like that, but it's a matter of just being respectful of the work that it took for me to get here. Yeah. Yeah. Because it took I a lot of you, work. I hear you on that one. I, I hate to hear, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story of people assuming that you're the help and that you're there to serve the function that you came to as opposed to you are actually a guest or, heaven forbid, an honored guest mm-hmm. of that function. It's rather, um, it's a shocking. It's disappointing, disillusioning, and shocking, but there's not the only stories I've heard from that. I have my own story on doctor, so I'm going to indulge in telling my story, which is I always say to people, you can either call me by my first name, Wanda, or you can call me Dr. Wallace, but nowhere in between. I'm happy mm-hmm. to be informal 
but don't say Ms. Because that's rude. And the assumption always is that I am not a doctor unless it's explicitly stated at the very beginning. So mm-hmm. I don't mind, I personally don't mind the informal. I can appreciate why that is a boundary too far for you. Mm-hmm. At the same time, boy, do we make a lot of assumptions about who does and doesn't have that PhD title. Yes. You should so, see student evaluations. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I see them all the time. They're from a different form, though. A little easier, I think, as well. Okay, now I want to turn to something that you have taught me in our conversations, and I quote you on all the time. So we were having a conversation a while ago about being an ally and what it means today to be an ally. And one of the things we always say about being an effective ally is that when you see an injustice, you speak up, you do something about it. But you added something to that that I just love. Tell us your addition. So in addition to speaking up, it's, it's like be, the, be that second person. Be the second. Like, you know, when, you, when somebody is making a statement, have their back and come forward and be their, be their second person that says the same thing and maybe adds a little flavor to it. But, but be that number two. Be that number two that's there, that, 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 that the person that is speaking up is not alone. And they know that that ally, like show your allyship, stand up and be there and speak up and let them know I'm right here next to you because it's often very isolating and it's exhausting for it's exhausting work and it's isolating. But to know that there's somebody else that's going to come right there and, and help you do that work is really encouraging. We also know in group behavior that if I get one voice and that's the only voice, for example, that's speaking up, then we can ignore it. We often do. We often shut it down. But when there's a second or heaven forbid a third, then we can swing the tide of what is actually said and how it's said and what's discussed in that group meeting. And three is sort of the magic number for turning the tide. So I just love your saying, be the second Back up whoever is having the courage to speak first. Do more than there. Nod your head. Join them. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that's good about being the second or the third is that it's not dismissed as that. If it's a person of color, it's not dismissed as oh, they're just being extra emotional. Because right. um, that's what I get. You know, oh, you're just emotional because you, this this means a lot to you. But when you see people that don't look like you having your back and and speaking up and standing up, and there's two or three or four, then it takes away from it takes the racial component out, and it just focuses on the injustice, and that is so key. Okay, love it. Absolutely love it. All right, so. Uh, Next to last question for you, which is if you have advice from your experience speaking to leaders around the world, things you wish they would say, know, do, understand, you can pick any one of those. What would you say to those leaders? Take the time to get to know your coworkers and get to know them from where they come from and not just how you see them interact with them in the corporate setting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, find out what their lives are like when they go home and sit at the dinner table. When they, uh, what do they do on the weekends? What are their hobbies? What kinds of things do they enjoy doing? What makes them tick? What, what kinds of, I mean, you learn so much about people when you find out about things outside of the one thing that brings you together. And that's what I've been enjoying in my, my leadership, my current leadership roles, just learning about different aspects about my colleagues that I never knew. Like this person is a, is an avid knitter, you know, or this person is a hiker or, you know, just all of those things. And it just adds so much more 
texture to my interactions and exchanges with them. And I think um, that that would be something that would be helpful for any leader. That's right in that sense that I always say you need to understand the whole person. If you yes. don't understand the whole person, you can't build trust. You can't do feedback. You can't build camaraderie. You can't get inclusive culture. You can't do much of anything, quite honestly, other than get about 75% of the output that you would otherwise get. Exactly. I think people are worried, particularly when we talk about uh, race, that they ask the wrong question or they put somebody in an embarrassing moment. So, do I have advice about how to ask that question? Or do I just ask that question of you the way I would ask of anybody else? Yeah, ask. I'm, I'm, I'm a shoot straight from the hip kind of person. So um, I, if you need to qualify it, just speak from the heart. And, and I know people are afraid for that. But just say, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm saying this right. And I don't mean to be offended. But can you tell me about X? Or can you explain Y to me? Just come straight out and ask the question. Just say, I'm trying to learn. Do you have a, if, and if you don't want to teach me, I'm not expect putting that on you, but if you don't want to teach me, is there, is there, is there something that you would recommend? Is there a podcast? Is there a book? Is there, is there a show? Is there something that I can learn more about this, this that I don't, I don't understand? Right. I think that's important. I think it's important that we also understand that people do get tired of trying to teach the world about their own experiences and that gets old. You got your day job to do as well as all this additional stuff. So some sensitivity on asking people to educate you, I think is a perfectly appropriate. All right, Dinah, my closing comment always is what takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your secret to success? What takes me out of my comfort zone is doing things and going to places I've never been. So stretching myself, mm-hmm. um, a challenge, um, a, a challenging myself to do something that I would never imagine myself doing. Um, I don't know if I would go that far. Like I'm, skydiving is something I've never done and I'm totally petrified of. I don't know that I could ever do it, <laughs> but that would be taking it to the extreme. Uh, what was the second part of the question? And what do you do to get through that when you push yourself out of that comfort zone? I have this little encouraging chant that I say to myself. Right. Um, I was an ath- I was a college athlete, a Division One track and field athlete, and so I'm I'm very good at com- competing with myself. So I always just say, "You can do this, D. You can do this," and I just chant that, "You can do this, D. You can do this," or "You got this." I just keep saying that to myself while I'm doing that that thing that I'm doing, <laughs> and so I'm kind of like my own coach, just kind of whispering in my ear that you can do it. Just take it one step at a time, and you'll get better each time that you keep practicing it. Um, You will be happy to know that I have heard that exact phrase from any number of senior leaders who talk themselves into a situation where they're now doing something, they're confronting a client, for example, they're making a presentation, and they're insanely nervous about it, and they'll say, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, and partly because it shuts out that voice that says, no, you can't, no, Mm -hmm. you can't, you're going to mess it up, (laughs) it's very simple. It's usually positive. I think Amy Cuddy's research would back that one up as well. Ah, yes. How about that one for yes. an interesting? Um, Dinah, a fascinating, full-ranging conversation on a whole host of topics. I think the part that I take the most inspiration from, is the right word, is to think about, uh, to hear about, even read about the resilience the community building, the resourcefulness, the reaching out to back each other up that exists among the enslaved community, whether that was just surviving day-to-day, feeding, taking care of kids, seeking freedom, whatever it was, that that is something we should all tune in more to. Yes. So thank you. I think that's really powerful, and I'm glad you're out there doing the research so we can all hear those stories. Thank you. 
My guest today, Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, author and historian, uh, chaired professor at the History Department at University of Texas in Austin. She is also the chair of that department. Book I highly recommend from her is called A Black Woman's History of the United States. And I encourage you to Google the phrase soul value, and you'll come up with all sorts of interesting articles about exactly what that means. Dinah, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. And do check out our new subscription options at outofthecomfortzone.com. And if you like this podcast, please like us on whatever place you listen to. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week 